Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Papaita. Today we have a, an amazing episode and guest. We have Nayland Blake, who I think probably needs no introduction, uh, but uh, we're going to give them one anyway because they are a, a fixture in the museum and art world. They are a fixture in Twitter and uh, they are, I think, just an, uh, an inspiration to me generally um, in, as I navigate the, the, wor the art world. So uh, let me read the best uh, artist bio I have read in a very long time. Nayland Blake is an artist. They were born in 1960 in New York City and live there now after a 14-year sojourn in California. Since 2002, they have been employed as a pair at the ICP Bard MFA program. For 10 years, they shared their home with Lehigh, a very self-possessed Boston Terrier. In 2005, they paid off their student loans. Welcome, Nalen. Hi. That the the accomplishments that I'm proudest of. That's what, that's what we tried to get there in the. Um, <laughs> you also have a Wikipedia entry that is noted, but I did not add that. <laughs> There's no well, way to magically link um, that in, um, except in our in our show notes, which we will do. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, I we have a, I guess a. a a podcast that we've sort of been planning for a while uh, that we wanted to run about uh, aesthetics and conservative aesthetics and um, a, a lot of things. And we're going to get into that. But first, uh, I think normally uh, for the last few months, we've been doing a check-in. Um, and we do that every month, uh, month because, uh, of course, we're living in the midst of a pandemic. Um, these are not normal times there's a, a a kind of a soul crushing news cycle um and of course since we last met um in uh i guess near the end of may there have been uh, mass protests uh there was the murder of george floyd there's now a recurrence of covid in some of the states that that uh opened early so there i I mean, it's kind of astounding how much has happened, and that has had an impact on all of us. And I, I wondered um, if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, Nalen, we can, we can start with you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I, uh, I think the thing that has been well, I guess my response has always been um, in in the midst of this that it's a that's a, that it's a sort of day to day and hour by hour sort of check in, right? I think we, I certainly initially, I think people were feeling um, many many different emotions, um, you know, one right after another, if not even like simultaneously, um, and so it was. Um, I had a I I have a weekly. Um, check in with a group of friends of mine, like a, a just a sort of Zoom um, uh, check in, and um, 
we have gone through just, you know, every possible um, emotion in the midst of it and people sort of breaking down and crying and, um, and just a whole lot um, going on. And so um, that has been, I think, uh, the one constant across almost every interaction that I've had. And uh, so, you know, coming up on what is this month three, I guess, if we date from like March, I sort of date from like Friday the 13th of March. So that's, that's where three and a half, I guess, half, yeah. probably about a hundred days. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, things have sort of evened out a little bit. Um, but uh, it's, um, it's, it's thrown a wrench into almost every aspect of every interaction that I've had with, any, with everyone. And in some ways that's really invigorating. I have to say that like, um, you know, this past month has been um, just, I think, remarkable in terms of the quality of conversations that I've had with people um, in, in so many different aspects in all sort of parts of my life. And so I'm, I'm really um, grateful that y'all invited me um here for this to talk to you guys who are two of my favorite people who um i think one of the good side effects of all this is that we all admit that we never really get to sit down and talk about stuff all that yeah. much otherwise you know um william how have things been for you um it's been a really intense last month i mean i think when we met for our last podcast we were focused on museum layoffs and how museums were impacted by the covid crisis and um all that concern radically shifted with the murder of george floyd um you know almost immediately after that the concerns around the museums shifted to do they have for example contracts with the nypd and uh you know ed halter and some other folks started a spreadsheet um, called arts orgs and police contracts that um, myself and some other people were contributing research to um, you know for the last several at least two months i've been working with a group of people around you know potentially forming some kind of artist union and that work is intersected with art workers for black lives uh, black artists for freedom um, putting those kind of demands around reparations around uh, equity um, for black artists has become like part of the primary nature of the work that we're doing right now around that. And it's still not necessarily public uh, work and there is no sort of formal organization. Um, you know, the conversation has, has been uh, regular and intense. And I guess that's been my most sort of um, constant check-in with a group of 30 plus people um, every Sunday for a couple of hours. And um, I'm just I'm just amazed at how much organizing is happening across the art world, across every sector of the art world. And as Nayland said, like I'm having conversations with people that I probably never thought I'd see together in the same room, but via Zoom, you know, it's an incredible um, group of people that have come together. So I would say the last month has been um, incredibly intense, you know, in, in ways that are just uh go beyond however my life has sort of uh been adjusting to 
uh, the COVID crisis. And, you know, uh, it was a huge switch to go from sort of being afraid to leave the apartment or, or interact with people in a, a bodega across the street to kneeling with, you know, a, a couple of thousand people in the park across the street for the first Black Lives Matter march that happened uh, in, in Bushwick um, a couple of weeks ago. So it's been just kind of a series of radical shifts. Uh, you know, nothing feels um, stable. And, and in a good way, you know, I think it's unsettled a lot of assumptions and expectations about how things can be, and that creates a space of possibility. So that sounds like, you know, you're feeling maybe more hopeful about things. Is that correct? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an optimism that things can change that I feel, that part I feel good about, the circumstances for why this is happening. Um, you know, I wish this didn't have to come out of a crisis, you know? Um, yeah. I wish we had been doing some of this work beforehand and some people have. And now there's, um, I think one of the key differences is we have the time to do this work, you know? Um, and that, that's, that's allowed us to do organizing, I think on a scale that I've not seen um, in a very long time. Yeah, you know, um, so the um, Black Lives Matter protest like walked directly by my house fairly early on, which was, um, I have to say something of a like re relief for me personally, because I've sort of been stuck fairly close to my home because I've had this um, running related injury that's probably gonna take like six months for <laughs> to really heal properly. Um, so I like I haven't been able to go to like Brooklyn to really participate in things that I would normally um, be very involved in, uh, at least sort of physically there. Um, but, uh, you know, my neighborhood is sort of interesting because we are in the AOC district. She represents us. Um, but Woodside is sort of, um, split in two. So the neighborhood has on the one hand, a, a lot of immigrants um, and families who I think tend to lean um, towards the left side of the spectrum. And then on the other side, there's a lot of cops that live here um, and a lot of Irish immigrants. And so like there's, you know, there's a bar on the way to the um, drugstore that I often have to pass. And it's just like filled with people standing outside. There's no way to get around them. None of them are wearing masks. They're all white people. And like, like that is just like every time I go past that place, I'm like filled with rage. Um, but you know, I think like, I, I wrote a newsletter about this, but I, I think one of the, the most difficult things I, I've found anyway is it, like finding a way to I don't I don't know what the right word is for it but like you know I have friends who um, are African-American and can't walk to the subway without feeling um, fear for their lives and like that is so saddening and crushing and I can't do anything to fix that. 
immediately, you know, because you want, when, when you hear something like that, that's like, like you, that's not okay ever. It's not okay for somebody to have to put up with this for a small, even a small amount of time until it changes. So like, it's, I think like the urgency that we're all feeling is like tied to some of, some of this, like this is, it, it's just, we can't, I feel like a lot of these changes, there is no more time to wait. And there never was. Um, so that's where, I guess that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's sort of been my mental space for the last month. Um, but William, maybe you want to um, sort of introduce like uh, the, the topic of um, aesthetics that we were really going to dig into for this particular episode. Um, because yeah. I think, you know, there was, a, there's sort of a lot to unpack there, but also Naylan had this like really great sort of series of tweets that um, inspired us. Yeah, we do have some of that that we can quote uh, <laughs> when we, we get to that um, sort of point, which definitely inspired us to ask uh, you to come on, Nayland. Um, and I just want to sort of preface this also by saying that, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, everyone, was, everyone, it seemed, in the art world and on Twitter was sort of obsessed with um, artwork that could be experienced from their homes through the internet, you know, like two months ago, there was a kind of resurgence of net art and interest in artists like Petra Courtright. And that, that does seem almost a little quaint because it, 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 we've entered a period now where we're interrogating and investigating the meaning of like sort of everything um, through the lens of race and kind of white supremacy. And I mean, it's just sort of fascinating, you know, um, you know, two months ago when we were talking about this podcast, I wanted to talk about, you know, a piece that I had seen a student do at SVA um, be well before the pandemic broke and the lockdown happened. And this young artist, Dulce Lamarca, had this piece. Um, I just want to get the title right. Um, it was called, Can You Hear Me? And she had done this performance where she was sort of isolated in her studio in New York. And it was broadcast uh, via the internet to a place called Proyecto Casa Intervenida um, in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where the people at, at the project space, which were presented in homes, could kind of uh, interact with the artist, you know, watch her do things, sort of um, have this engagement. And I thought, wow, what a sort of prescient piece um, about how art might function during the pandemic. And I wanted to talk about that like two months ago. And, you know, all of the concerns around that kind of, um, let's say art world interest, which had been so centered on how we experience art in the period of social distancing has just radically changed. Um, and I have kind of a little bit of a, a, a mini script here. So if you'll bear with me, I'll try to kind of get through this because I think it sets up a lot of the questions that we have and how things have sort of radically changed since even the beginning of the pandemic. And I think Patty and I wanted to have a discussion about aesthetics um, that we're seeing coming out of the conservative movement centered around Trump and their red hats, body armor, military style weapons, con Confederate flags, 
and a kind of generally pro pro American aesthetic choices. Um, and, and that's extended to the internet to create a kind of bizarre collection of terrible looking memes that are seemingly unable to ever represent anything ironic or intelligent. Maybe at best or worst, the alt-right memes like Pepe the Frog or the bizarre cultural references of the Boogaloo movement. Um, I, and this is, we can unpack some of this, Nayland. Um, the Boogaloo movement is a sort of white nationalist group whose members often identify itself through wearing Hawaiian t-shirts a trope garnered from the message board interest in the 1980s movie, Break Into Electric Boogaloo, um, which I think gets at some of the kind of confusion and the way people are using um, cultural signifiers, uh, you know, to kind of code certain allegiances in a way. Um, and, you know, some of, some of this stuff for me sort of overlaps with the same aesthetics of like the jogging and Brad Trammell meme art. Um, which sometimes it's hard to peg what the political perspective is even there. Um, but then, you know, sort of moving beyond explicitly conservative aesthetics into the more progressive art world, we are confronted with this, the structural and systemic bias of white supremacy that implicates all of us uh, to different degrees. You know, if we're not separating race or, and class or gender and sexual identity into kind of discrete categories, it, it can create a sense of like existential crisis about the entirety of aesthetics, um, much like a, a decolonial critique of America as an ongoing settler colonial project, um, you know, where, where it takes away that idea of the commons because our democracy or public space is founded on stolen land, indigenous genocide and enclosure and slavery. Uh, under the auspices of capitalism that has just created tiers of inequality that I think the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and the George Floyd protests have made just part of our national uh, debate in so many ways that uh, I think we want to kind of get at today. Um, and then any, any discussion of conservative aesthetics is incomplete without like an examination of our own approved aesthetic categories and beliefs and how they might embody and reproduce white supremacy uh, as well as the subordinate or like corollary power relationships with pa patriarchy, heteronormativity, um, capitalism. And so we really find ourselves in a moment where maybe public art, and this is an oversimplification of all the different things we're seeing um, online, uh, in public spaces, um, has become just like a major field for contesting historical and contemporary systems of inequality that George Floyd's murder uh, by a white police officer and the pandemic's disproportionate impact on the black community and people of color, particularly the Latin community working in meat factories, uh, you know, is really made visible um, all over throughout society. So I just, I feel like we've, we've I, for the last month, have been watching people uh, have to really interpret um, all sorts of symbols, uh, all sorts of uh, information um, in ways that I think your, your Twitter thread, uh, Nayland, um, really brought up. And so, Patty, I don't know if you want to kind of, um, I think you, you sort of had a question or uh, thought about how to sort of introduce Nayland's Twitter thread. Um, Oh, well, I think just mostly the thing that I had thought about the Twitter thread was that it was a really kind of important thought about um, art criticism and the kind of thing that, at least in the, the Twitter sphere that we're all a part of, but I think a lot of people are not, um, 
you know, this tweet, I, I, I don't remember how many likes it got, you know, but I could imagine it getting like, you know, a hundred or 200 likes, um, which in our world would still be, you know, a lot, it would signify a kind of importance, but then be forgotten or just not kind of, uh, these are the kinds of exchanges that I think are really worth pulling out um, and teasing out a little bit more um, so that they don't just sort of stay in this um, Twitter realm. Um, yeah, and I, I can just add, uh, you know, part of, what struck me about your Twitter thread, Nayland, was the fact that like so much of the discussion we are seeing, um, it, it, the discussion is really rooted in interpretation and um, and really like the subject position of like the kinds of authors that we're talking about, whether we're talking about um, the designers of you know Confederate monuments at some point in the past and so we're talking about this kind of like temporal subject position where we're interpreting people's intentions from a different era um, and so much of that is putting it back on uh, the role of the viewer as you know an author of the work and we've seen you know I guess there's a, a kind of um, conflicts over over interpretation and meaning that you know, I'm pretty familiar with through the lens of art happening all the time, um, whether it's erasing somebody else's work. Um, but, but now we're witnessing it in public spaces by people that um, might not consider themselves artists or take on that role. Like there's just, I guess I'm thinking about like Mayor Bowser commissioning the Black Lives Matter mural in DC right. and creating, you know, public art. Um, and to your thread, Nayland, Um, why should we teach people art criticism? Not so that they can quote unquote appreciate great art, but so they can help their culture thrive. And I think that kind of points to this role of like a very active reader, um, you know, which in our current moment has found the public in an array of like non-capital artists producing what might become sort of great art that might help our culture, you know, thrive beyond the forms and canons that we see in museums and galleries. And Nalem pointed out in the Twitter thread, art criticism is one of the vital tools in returning culture to a fluid living state. But if only the critic is willing to examine their own presuppositions, which is where I feel like I'm very much in that space as well, you know? Um, so do you maybe want to um, tell us a little bit about what prompted the the Twitter thread and if we're totally off base or uh, I don't I don't uh, I don't I don't feel that you're off base I'm 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 really I'm happy that it was helpful for you I have to say that it was prompted by um, my ongoing uh, self-inflicted frustration with like listening to certain podcasts so, so it's like my hate listen um, is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and um, and uh, there's a there's one person on there whose entire frame of reference, interpretive frame of reference, is so completely limited, is so sort of straight and white. Even though I'm sure that they would think of themselves as a really like you know, as a super good liberal, 
but mm -hmm. their inability to actually be able to cite the work of like a queer author as like, or, or to relate a, a new work that they're seeing to that or to the work of a black person. Like the, like the, 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 and I was just like, there's the problem, right? If, if your, if your interpretive framework is so fixed that even when you're looking at the work of people who are quite dislike, unlike you, you can only ascribe value to it insofar as it reminds you of work that is just sort of your own internal canon, then you're really not doing the work of culture. You're not helping, you're, you're not helping culture to sort of grow and flourish. And I think it, it, it grows and flourishes through combination and through fluidity. And so, um, so I, maybe I can, I'll, I'll just, um, it's not a long thread, I'll kind of, um, I'll just, I'll read through it. Um, yeah, so just to interrupt, like, since I last looked at it, the like count has has gone up quite a bit. So it's close to six hundred likes now. Um, I I I my existence feels reaffirmed. Um. So uh, art criticism, I mean, this is from the 11th of June. Art criticism is the activity of thinking with and through art objects. If you constantly reach for the same few objects to think with, you stagnate as a critic and simply reinforce your own bias. Um, at worst, stagnant critics put forth the vision of the world where their own limits are presented as the horizon of all artistic possibility or relevance. When this vision is connected to institutional power, canons are formed. So I guess one of the things that I was talking about, uh, remembering this particular podcast, is that they were talking about painting, and they um, and they immediately related it to Pollock oh. and to de Kooning, and I was like, well, why not Joan Mitchell, or why not like 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 these are not, it's not deep cuts to find someone, another painter who was active at that time that you could talk about this in relationship to. Um, and to not do so is, is uh, after a certain point, it's kind of willful, right? So when this vision is connected to institutional power, canons are formed. A canon is authority masquerading as a consensus. If your institution can't interrogate its canons, it's not serving a public. It's fossilizing culture, not participating in it. Art criticism is one of the vital tools in returning culture to a fluid living state, but only if the critic is willing to re-examine their own presuppositions. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then the last one, why should we teach people art criticism? Not so that they can appreciate great art, but so that they can help their culture to thrive. And I think that we'd see in museums, um, you know, this thing that I'm talking about and the sort of formation of canons, and that can happen in, in a, an assertion of the broadest sense, but it can also happen in specialized um, aesthetic communities. So a sort of canon of what, um, of, of what is important uh, uh, queer art. 
um, a, a canon of a, a canon of what is um, important um, black art. Um, and 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 unless people are willing to do the interpretive work of pulling those canons apart, then they end up becoming kind of self-reinforcing um, sites of authority that to me um, uh, are um, problematic because they, they uh, encourage people to simply worship and not question. So I think that that can happen at, at many different scales. Um, and I think that that's, that, that I, 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 you know, it's one of the things that I, I look at in terms of my teaching is trying to help people to, to act as interpreters of their enthusiasms, to, to figure out through writing, like why it's important for them to be critics um, so that they have a sense of, of a, you know, a, an active um, aesthetic life because that because I, I don't I don't believe that there is a consensus um, and uh, and I, and I think that the consensus that we seem to be presented with is one that's like uh, has is a very thin veneer laid over authority and so maybe that's the moment that we're in right now um, is that across the board, We've, we're seeing how all of these supposedly liberal and open institutions were actually engineered to reinforce authority and how thin that veneer was. Um, and, and, and that's the exciting thing, right? Is the sort of, is, is the sort of um, uh, brittleness. And the thing that I think has sort of changed at this moment is not that people have experienced are experiencing like greater levels of exclusion or or um, or silencing, but that there are finally other forums that allow people to um, attack, um, uh, you know, uh, these authoritative structures um, at the structural level, like publishing wage, you know, wage figures is attacking um, uh, you know, um, uh, white supremacy at a level that it is not attacked at when you're talking about inclusion in programming, right? That, that, that those sort of, that, that for arts institutions, we've seen how hollow these kind of responses are. Like, right, like this weekend, um, where you know, we're in the midst of like the marathon um, Arthur Jaffa um, uh, screening across a number of arts institutions, um, and uh, and and Arthur is an amazing artist, and I and I love him, and that film is super powerful. But um, come on, that's that's not addressing inequity within the structure of your museum. That's not addressing like who has wage stability that's not addressing like who has benefits and who doesn't it doesn't it's not addressing like um you know are you still paying um your guards are you still paying your are you still paying your maintenance workers um during the shutdown or are they furloughed and and 
laid off, as we've seen at so many institutions. So, so anyway, go ahead. Well, I just want to respond because I think it was something that um, that we wanted to talk about around this idea of like what sort of constitutes art at a moment like this and what is what is political art what is activist art and that notion of those spreadsheets like even the arts organ police contract spreadsheet is collectively authored by a whole bunch of people that may be artists that might be administrators that are really looking at can we get some structural change in the way these museums operate because it's also how the museums are policed, not just when they contract with police potentially, but also the way that the police um, operate in the areas around museums to sort of keep them space and which bodies they allow in and don't allow out. And that kind of work for me feels like an amazing piece of online public art to some degree, the spreadsheet that can have an actual uh, impact potentially to make change structurally and that's a very different proposition than Arthur Jaffra's piece which you know it can be powerful and sort of wonderful um, but it's still like a singular author and it functions in the all the normal ways that I would sort of see art operating and it kind of loops me back to this other idea that we have this sort of national debate about statues and their relationship to art history and in, in histories of uh, slavery in the Civil War but then we're also talking about structural changes and systemic changes that get closer to like law or statutes, you know, this kind of like, what do we really want uh, during this period? And, you know, I think that the, the museum's kind of streaming Arthur Jaffer's piece gets back to this kind of, you know, tension and conflict between um, symbolism and then like actual material systems and structures that need to be changed and that that thin veneer you're talking about of putting some art on top of it that it'll be okay does not seem nearly enough at all you know and when you know when you were talking about the way in which uh, the slate podcasters and even myself I'm like thinking about erasure I'm like oh de Kooning erased the you know whatever Rauschenberg erasing the de Kooning is like the white classic you know, can, canonical example. And, and before the podcast, I was even thinking more about, um, I was thinking about Alfred Barr's chart of abstract art, that kind of famous, you know, piece, and then Hank Willis Thomas's colonialism and abstract art map, which complicates that and becomes a different reference point that we, you know, want to kind of open up this conversation around. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I'm still thinking, um, part of my assumptions are so much of this is based in like thinking about aesthetics and how mm -hmm. things look and and what I want to be able to do is open it up to forms like the spreadsheet you know mm -hmm. as, as a real sort of alternate that um, challenges a lot of even our ideas of authorship yeah. you know who is an artist how are artists represented um, and I think that's you mm -hmm. know part of the discussion for today um, yeah I mean, I, I, I think that what's exhilarating to me about this present moment is that a lot of people um, seem to be asking the question, what do people need? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that is, and, and I would contrast that with like, I've, I've worked in artists run nonprofits since the mid eighties. And at every one of them that I've worked at, there has been an ongoing debate about how do we get more different kinds of people in the door? How do we get people 
um, you know, how do we how do we get the how do we reach these communities that we aren't already reaching? How do we, um, you know, how do we, um, you know, uh, encourage diversity? How do we, you know, it's gone by any number of of um, of uh, kind of um, you know palliative uh, terms over those decades. But you know, the fundamental question is not how do you get people in the door, but um, what do people need? Mm -hmm. Like what need is your organization answering? And, um, and, if you, and, and if you start asking that question, then, um, then the appearance of it doesn't matter, right, at that point. Um, and and I, I think we can sort of get into it, like talking about some of these broader aesthetic questions. Um, I would kind of postulate that that um, modernism and um, and it's non um, it's non progenitor postmodernism are um, are exactly the moves by which capital asserts that nothing about what a thing looks like matters. Mm -hmm. um, that it is all reducible to the same systems of exchange and that ultimately um, being able to by-step the question of what do people need is the thing that marks you as a uh, potentially productive member of like transnational modernist <laughs> aesthetics. <laughs> Yeah. So, so just to throw that out there, I mean, and, 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 and at this point, I mean, like, you know, not to mince words, but, um, but, um, but transnational postmodernist aesthetics is the same word for um, colonialism and, and, um, and, uh, and racism. And 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 white supremacy, like those three things, operate in the same way. So, just I, <laughs> I hate to I hate to ask this, but like it's transnational post postmodern art, right? Like, there's three things I'm not missing. That another mm -hmm. art. So, transnational is just like the international. We're talking about the international postmod, like the international contemporary art scene. Is that what we're talking about? Right, which is built on an idea that any individual work can pass across borders and still have an equal aesthetic effect. So that it is yeah. utterly it it is utterly divorced from place and time. And so and and that's why the auction house and the art fair are the perfect medium for it because they are spaces and operations that are built to be independent of um, of a location or a time. Right, they're very kind of enclosed spaces, and when you, and you see, I think like what was it two years ago? We saw that really break down in New York when Omer Fast had that show in Chinatown that was supposed to kind of speak to gentrification but he hadn't like lived in the city for years he just sort of parachuted in and had some idea about how this 
work was going to talk to people without actually engaging with them. Right. You know, yeah. so you can end up in these like bubbles, which I think like the thing that we like within the kind of larger, more mainstream world, the, the right wing bubble is the thing that kind of um, is maybe most is the thing that I go to first, but it exists everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, the most visible example of that for me during this period was when the New Museum and the Whitney, instead of responding to what people need, what the protesters might need, like a space to use a restroom, to get some water, they boarded up their facades. And it kind of revealed exactly the lack of connection to a community or a specific place right. that they, yeah. they don't serve the community or the public they serve a kind of international non-person, you know, this kind of like tourist um, that, that can see art in Berlin or Hong Kong or Mexico City. And the art looks the same wherever you go because it's part of that different system. And for me, a lot of times I just kind of reduce that to just like an emphasis on a kind of formalism disconnected from the world. And if the work is completely, you know, sort of within itself, you know, and I guess that is sort of how I understand modernism to some degree is that it, it can't be connected to a, an actual place or have, you know, specific concerns. Um, we call that like regionalism in the U.S., you know, that is mm -hmm. both like a value judgment and a kind of pejorative term to be like, it looks like it came from over there, you know. Right. Um, right. That, William, you know. William, just a note that you might want to turn your video off because every once in a while you... Um, okay. Uh, your your audio breaks down a little bit. We will get into the IT expertise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm I'm already missing your your enthusiastic nodding. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> I I will I will uh, continue to make noises. <laughs> uh -huh. Um. I yeah. I mean. Um, they boarded up their facades in the same way that Bloomingdale's did. Um, yeah. And should come as no surprise. Um, you know, it's, um, it is a, um, I, I would go a step further, which is to say that, um, you know, to the extent that the market has asserted for years that it is the only game in town, that it is the only game internationally, um, even its its pretenses to um, to political engagement are um, as much um, as as much sanded down as uh, so it, so uh, representation on those terms is i think um not uh again not answering the question of what people need right yeah i think another part of the conversation that we wanted to get to is if the museums essentially just sort of boarded up their lobbies mm -hmm. revealing their kind of relationship to needs um it also feels like it's a great metaphor for the way that the art that you're describing and the art market art and the blue chip artists are so disconnected from people's lives 
that it's no wonder that it feels um, like a hollow or kind of superficial conversation relative to the amount of, of public debate around the role of public art um, in society. You know, mm -hmm. like this debate isn't happening it, what, around what museums are doing in, in the sense of the art they might show or share. It's happening around murals. It's happening around the removal of, of, of monuments. It's mm -hmm. happening around the creation of other forms that I, you know, I feel like that's where the real cultural like is happening. You know, that it's not happening at museums because they are so disconnected from public life, I guess, you know, to some degree. Um, well, their move in relationship to this crisis was to protect their investment. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and people saw that and people continue to see it. Um, and, um, and I think it's very, it's, it's immensely painful for the people who work in institutions um, who have, you know, in many cases, um, people of color who have like been tasked with um, changing the, um, the, the internal culture of these institutions to then be presented with an economic situation where it's like, well, actually we can't afford that anymore. So, um, you know, you're the most recent hired, you have to go. Um, and, uh, and, and we're seeing that in any number of institutions. Um, and it is, um, it's once again, the notion that, um, that, that, uh, that equity, um, only functions as an add on after the real work of like, um, of, of cultivating a canon and protecting an investment has been done, um, you know, and protecting a legacy. And so, I, you know, I think that, um, I mean, maybe there's a way that I can sort of bridge this into the other topics that you, that you were bringing up, because um, I think that there's an important distinction to be made between um, uh, meme culture, um, like like uh, white supremacist meme culture, and um, and conservative aesthetics, um, and also the way in which the current um, species of activism has been playing out um, uh, on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, and and what is and what is now meant by a public or by public display? I mean, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me is that the Trump administration has actually um, made a public uh, demonstration mean something. Again, I have like this past four years. I have, you know, it's the the first time in my life really since you know, the, the 80s experience around AIDS activism that I've seen so many people out in the street, um, uh, you know, often for the first time and that the, the act of like physically being outdoors 
has a kind of meaning that it hasn't had for a long time. And that sort of started with the first women's marches around the inauguration mm -hmm. in, in 2017. And then, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the, you know, the sort of tying of that movement to um, the organizers of, of Black Lives Matter. And so there's that whole, at that that whole batch of activity that I think is um, stands in stark contrast to what I think of as the kind of like 4chan um, uh, right wing uh, meme culture, white supremacist meme culture. Um, I think they have very very different um, goals. So maybe. Um, so I mean, we can talk about that. Yeah. Well, well I guess I, a couple of things. I mean, I, um, I was sort of curious, independent of this, like how you felt, like the there was a difference, where if it felt very similar to the uh, like what's happening now to the AIDS crisis, because that was something that I think I was just I was not in the city at that time, and I was also not really old enough to know. Um, at, you know, I was in high school, I, I guess I, I was maybe old enough, but, mm -hmm. um, but I was certainly disconnected from the New York City culture. Like, um, was there a certain kind of turning point then as of now that seems similar? Um, did you, like, I mean, because the other thing too is I think that conservative talk around that time was very different right because there are maybe it was sort of similar but at that time you know there was this idea that like there was a degradation of like morality and that and there was a lot of fomenting of fear around that and it sort of feels like a lot of that um kind of it was always bad acting, you know, uh, but it seems, but there were always true believers. But now it seems like the minute, like that kind of morality, like the real crisis of morality has always been on the right, you know, and that seems to be laid bare in a way that it mm -hmm. really hasn't been um, before. Um, and I don't know if that's true. Well, I'm gonna, I mean, so I'm I'm going to try to quickly point to a few different things. I mean, yes. first of all, I was even though I was in, in um, communication with a lot of folks in New York um, during the '80s, that was the time when I was living in the Bay Area, and yes. and I have some things to kind of say about that um, just in a distinct way from this. Um, but I think that what what we see in the trump administration is actually tied to ideas about um soviet power um towards the end of this towards the end of the soviet union mm. meaning that the goal of all of these of all these agitators is is being a bad actor is not being convincing because the ultimate goal is um is mass cynicism 
Okay. So the the right. way the the like when if you spoke to people who um who lived in the Soviet Union um in the you know in the in the late 70s and early 80s and I'm 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 sort of old enough with enough, <laughs> with enough of like a left wing you know bent that I did have the chance what their experience was was that there were two levels on which everything functioned. They understood that everything that the government did was some form of a show, that it was not, that it was not tied to a reality. And so they just didn't bother like attempting any sort of political change. Right. So, so that's the goal of this administration. It is to put enough power in place so that um, it doesn't matter and it, that that like the majority of the country doesn't believe in what you're doing or doesn't, you know, that that you can just sort of assert this and they are so beaten down by fighting so many different battles and so disillusioned that they take comfort in their cynicism and just lapse into inaction. Okay. And so you get to continue to run the show. So I think that's... That's sort of the Trump piece of it, and I think that that's why, like when you're when we're seeing these sort of Russian operatives in, um, in um, on online culture, all they're trying to do is foment um, dissent and disillusion. So it's like everybody is a hypocrite. It, everybody is, you know, it's like one politician is as bad as the next. Yeah, that does seem to be kind of the underlying argument for. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think there's sort of the 4chan, like meme culture thing. And its goal is really to operate as a kind of true subculture so that its, um, its aesthetics and its, um, and its symbols are purposefully ugly, off-putting and obscure because they are they're only meant to be in jokes and and ways for people to recognize each other's political affiliation. And is this the conservative kind of alt-right crowd? You know, that yes. can include an uneasy alliance of all kinds of white supremacists. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 it and it grew out of, again, a sort of cynicism about um uh, uh, about online culture and and sort of professed liberalism but its goal is never to it's it doesn't have the relationship to the past that that i think you were talking about in terms of the sort of militarized police you know fetishizing like all of that stuff to me is an entirely different aesthetic that is really uh, what I would call like a true sort of neo-fascist aesthetic in that it is based in appeals to, um, you know, male strength and unity tied to a supposed glorious past, which as we all know, like tracks back to, you know, Winkelmann's misreading of like Greek and, you know, Greek sculpture. <laughs> So, like, how would you apply these ideas to, say, uh, Marble Cake, right? Like, the um, in 2009, Time Magazine had, like, their world's most influential people 
and like um, I think there was uh, some like some saying that all of the um, like all of these people spelled out that was like marble cake and this was a was not a 4chan joke mm -hmm. um, like I guess I'm just wondering about this because like it's um, to me like you know it's 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 a verifiable like subculture but it seems like the goal is to have some of it percolate up into the mainstream right like or I, is that just a is that just an inevitable consequence I, 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 I think that that's something that has happened despite um you know um despite um the the genesis of those um uh, of like i go back to i go back to gamergate with all of this mm -hmm. right and yeah. and that that really the the crucible of these things was um silencing women essentially in the games industry um silencing queer people in the games industry and by like Put it, getting together bullets and boards and and attacking um, people online. Um, you know, this was not conceived of as a vast political movement. It was conceived of as a mob that you could summon at will to go after somebody. Oh, and, sort of like sort of sort of like um, the Reddit channel, the Donald or something. Mm -hmm. that, yeah sort of became like they yeah. were the gate instigators. And exactly. Yeah. So that's so so in that way it's it is uh momentary in and um and shifting and fleeting in its tactics. And that's the thing that I think it shares in common with the efforts on the left to um to uh you know, to mobilize in public space. That the, that it is not about actually instilling a new um, a new sort of legacy, but it's about trying to come up with tactics that that um, that get you to the place you need to go in the moment. Right. Um. Just to sort of go back a tiny bit. Um. The uh, the phrase that um, ended up on Times, like most influential people of the world, was Marble Cake, also the game, which was some sort of in-joke. Um, and Gamergate is, could you just sort of describe what that is in a couple of sentences for people who might not be familiar with it? Um, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it, it is a term um that uh that describes a period of of um uh sort of organized online harassment on social media um initially based out of uh a uh, a supposed scandal um, involving a video game journalist um, and a game developer. Um, 
and they had and, some sort of romantic fallout or something. Yeah, them. but but really, what was what ended up happening was a um, it became a uh, a, a a sort of vehicle for organizing a uh, a, a a very kind of loose um, collective of. Uh, even know how to how to say this, but um, I mean, maybe sort of uh, uh, concentrated online trolling maybe is the best yeah. is, is the best thing to do it. And 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 what the, its importance is that um, it was harassment directed at people of color, directed at women, directed at trans people, and directed at queer people. Um, and the techniques that were developed in the midst of that campaign, um, which may seem that it's about a kind of very niche community, those techniques then um, uh, were applied during the 2016 election. And many of the people around, um, around Breitbart and around 4chan and, and the sort of um, disruptors in um, in the online sphere um, got their start in in the middle of Gamergate. So, it was, sorry to keep asking this stuff, but no, I'm no. trying to like wrap my head around it so I can like, if I wanted to repeat the concepts, I could actually do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if we if we talk about like um, this. Uh, phenomenon like the Gamergate, um, you know, 4chan message board stuff as being about um, in some ways just like organized online harassment. Um, and we talk about the goals of the Trump administration as being um, about uh, mass cynicism. What are the goals of the Trump um, rallies are they are they one in the same of cynicism or like because you've said that that's like that's a thing that they've made relevant in a way that wasn't before so is it like oh i i meant um i no i i was that was a backhanded compliment i meant um i meant uh, uh leftist organizing out in the streets like okay. uh, like like that's like like it you know um uh the the attendance numbers for the first women's march as opposed to the attendance numbers for um trump's trump's inauguration you know it's right. it's like it's they've become relevant again because it seems to be one of the few things that he cares about is being able to like stand in front of a crowd and so if you can show him that you that your crowd is bigger than his crowd it seems to be like the one thing that infuriates him. Well, and it does seem like there is some sort of crossover in terms of like like online organizing and trolling because like what has, I mean, it was like a bunch of teenagers who listened to a lot of K-pop that like bought up all of Trump's yes. um, tickets for his um, last rally. And so he gave the rally to a, like a half empty stadium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many layers to this that it's just <laughs> incredibly fascinating because 
you know, when you were describing the, the, the idea that the Trump administration and this kind of Soviet model of just making people so disgusted and cynical that they no longer participate in government, mm -hmm. you know, I can see elements of that happening within the left, you know, that, mm -hmm. that just sort oh. of critique liberalism to the point of inaction and they don't really engage. They can get some big numbers following their podcasts, but it just sort of reaffirms their own beliefs that nothing is to be done and they don't do anything. Whereas activists pouring into the streets, you know, demanding change, pursuing policy and legislation, or, you know, whether it's reform or revolution, there's a, a desire for actual change and uh, a participation. Um, I mean, I, I think it was a little heartening to see, uh, say, Engel lose to Bowman in the Democratic primary pushing, you know, uh, another socialist, you know, or at least socialist friendly candidate, you know, into, into state government. Um, and that, that cynicism is something I think about a lot, because I also feel like there's a certain aspect of that in the art world that is not about the structural change, but more about the symbolic gesture or the kind of, um, we're not really going to change the institution, but we will change a few things uh, floating on the surface that are mostly uh, aesthetic gestures. Um, and so there's that kind of thing of cynicism that I think is really important to understand. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it, it sort of makes it all just kind of a cultural of, of, of critique, whether it's trolling, um, and that, that memes and the kind of online content do work almost better for that because as you said, they're sort of rooted in humor and mm -hmm. entertainment and they're kind of fun. Um, and, and all of that aside, thinking about Gamergate, I mean, one of the things is that if, if you're critiquing the culture of like heteronormative games designed for men, mm -hmm. isn't like Call of Duty, one of the most popular franchises where you're basically playing hyper-realistic paramilitary combat operations. And any critique of that threatens that sort of core audience of like, I'm not gonna say it's all young white men, but that seems to be sort of um, part of what's under attack is this kind of value system that is militaristic, um, it's violent, it's uh, all sort of patriarchal mm. stuff. And I, you know, I think- William, I, I just, I, I would, um, I, I would sort of caution you a little bit about um, kind of uh, flattening that um, because I, I think it's more helpful to see it in a, in, in a different way, which is that um, the early parts, uh, the you know, the early 2000s um, saw the rise of independent video game development and saw the rise of technologies and distribution patterns that allowed, um, uh, you know, um, queer people, um, women, um, people of color, trans people to begin to develop their own games and distribute them themselves. And it was, it was the rise of that power, that sort of independent power that provoked this backlash. Right. I, I totally so, agree with that. 
so that's the thing is that I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize the overall public as being um, as as um, as being um, these uh, as as being um, uh, uh, you know young straight white men. Those are the people who felt most threatened by yeah. the by the growing diversity and um, and and uh, chose this method of attack. And then that became the moment at which that same critique of the video game industry then began to be applied to um, uh, you know other parts of the social sphere. And to me, the parallel here is the way in which um, artists run independent spaces in, started in the late 60s and through the 70s um, through in many parts, like a lot of public funding um, gained a kind of prominence and were able to set an agenda that was, that was um, much more diverse um, than, the, than the commercial art world had been up to that point. And that growth of power provoked a conservative backlash on, you know, under the Reagan administration. So I, I see these things, like when we're sort of talking about like what's a public art and what is a public, um, I, I think a, a lot of times I see these things as being very tribal um, and, the, and the sort of the, the, when we try to reach for like a kind of unified public, we're automatically um, ignoring um, what might be the real value in the dynamics of pushing back and forth between these. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I'm trying to think through um, around the idea of publicness to some degree is that like, say the core of the Gamergate trolls, if they're, mm -hmm. if they're feeling like a threatened community, I'm, I'm sitting here staring at this picture of, of Trump supporters, you know, armed with weapons, you know, bearded white men mm -hmm. um, with their guns, you know, at, at the state capitol. Um, at the same time, there's one guy off to the right who's wearing his Hawaiian t-shirt. And there's like this kind of like weird overlap potentially of that kind of classic paramilitary Trump supporter and somebody who might be from the kind of Boogaloo movement. Mm -hmm. um, but the aesthetics and that kind of connection to the gaming industry is something that I, I guess I just make that connection often that there's a kind of hyper violent gaming culture that has some parallels in the way in which people perform their political value systems out in the world, whether it's in public spaces or online. And that that, that is this kind of like conservative aesthetic that I think when we move, we shift to the art world, I've always found that, you know, a, a kind of explicit conservative aesthetic in art is essentially just sort of banned without being spoken of in the art world. Like you have John McNaughton making those Trump paintings. Mm. But when we start talking about the structures and aesthetics of the art world, whether it's trans, you know, sort of national, uh, postmodern contemporary art, we do have to start thinking, I mean, I think that's part of the conversation is um, if it implies a public audience or uh, some kind of audience that does, that assumes, I guess, um, I guess I'm wondering it, how embedded is white supremacy and, you know, kind of whiteness in, in 
that that international aesthetic, I guess. Um, well, it's it's right there in the name of the cube. Uh, <laughs> like, <get> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I I I I would say that. Um, I would say that a frictionless aesthetic serves white supremacy equally well to um, to a uh, to to like a narratively coded conservative aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Like like what's what's you know more conservative than a a big thing that you put in the lobby of your corporate office? that you walk by every day and don't have to think about. You know, that's as much, um, that, that to me is a, an extension of the notion the, that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that human experience is interchangeable as commodity. <laughs> Just to sort of throw that in there. I mean, yeah. is that like so we would put like Jeff Koons' puppy in that category, would we? Yeah, but it's more complicated than that. I mean, and this is part of the difficulty of participating in a system where I'm, I'm gonna, I feel bad for saying this already, but whenever I think about what Nayland just said, I think about Julie Morettu's giant mural in the lobby of Goldman Sachs and the way that that particular mural kind of abstracts historical. Uh, information, including like maps of the slave trade into a kind of formal abstraction that can be appreciated frictionlessly in the lobby of Goldman Sachs. But the position and the context for that work um, implicates it deeply in the flow of global capital and these systems that we talk about. And I don't think there's much that Julie's subject position can do to save that work because it's so not visible within the work in the way that it's been formalized and abstracted. I, I think of that one as probably the most striking example for me of what happens when you put that artwork in the lobby of, you know, a giant corporation, like a investment bank like Goldman Sachs. More, more so than Jeff Koons. I think Koons is so obvious, you know. Uh, well, yeah, no, it's, it's true. I mean, um, I think you, you had Mark Bradford in the notes too, as, as who I think is like, I, I think he is, I think you can look at that work and it pushes back a little bit. He, to me, like when I hear the idea of like social abstraction, which is the term that is used to describe this kind of um, abstraction that's like motivated by social issues, but may not be apparent, immediately apparent, like Mark Bradford's, um, sort of enormous, uh, like hanging sculptures sometimes, you know, I feel that kind of friction, um, even though it's not immediately apparent. Whereas I feel like Julie Maratu, everything is so heavily aestheticized that that message is kind of buried in a way that actually makes me a little, it, like, it makes me sad. But but here's the thing, both of these arguments are proceeding from a model where somehow what the person is doing in the studio, like what, what the artist is doing in the studio is through some incredible alchemy going to have an effect 
regardless of how the object is treated after it leaves their hands. Mm-hmm. Like whether it goes up for auction, who it gets sold to, where it gets displayed, all of these things are actually intimately tied to what a work of art means. Right. Um, and, yeah. and, and that doesn't, I, like, you know, I can have all the goodwill in the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, and if, and if something that I touched, like, ends up on, you know, the, you know, the, the wall of, well, I mean, you know, a piece of mine, it was a part of the Chase Manhattan collection, right? Um, it's, and, and it is there, um, in part because of its frictionless character, you know, it's been part of their collection for like 30 years. So I can't claim that there's some, um, you know, mystical ineffable decoding that somebody might do when they encounter it that would allow them to arrive at a radical subject position when everything that ar- that surrounds it and everything that conditions their experience is designed to exactly eliminate that subject position. Yeah, okay, I hear that. You know, and that's the thing, that's what I, that's when I talk about like the brittleness of these systems, that's what I mean. It's like the present moment has shown how inadequate they are actually as conveyors of meaning in the short term Mm. And how and how conditioned they are by their location in the long term. Yeah, and I when I was referencing Mark Bradford's work, he doesn't have say a, a giant mural at Goldman Sachs, but his work still flows through the blue chip market, the auction circuit, and that I think participating in that system um, unquestioningly or without having any agency. Uh, or, or contesting where the work ends up is something that, you know, we do need to consider um, potentially as artists, uh, you know, like, I mean, during my show last fall, when I even suggested that I would vet collectors or put conditions on the sale of the work, mm-hmm. so it would go to institutions that were cr- critiqued in the work or to certain collectors that were depicted in it, it was roundly ridiculous rejected as um, impossible and probably, um, you know, kind of fantastical by any of the art press that covered it. Um, My dealer in LA just didn't want to touch that work because Mm. he found it difficult. But it points to, I mean, not only how brittle the systems are, but how, um, how, how tied the kind of commercial market and the institutions are to that system and any questioning of that. I mean, we both know how difficult yeah. it is. We have work in corporate collections. I, I think I have three pieces that were bought by JP Morgan Chase uh, a few years ago um, that have really never been seen outside of a, a, a four week show in like Mexico city. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're locked away in some private storage vault. And it, for me, that seems so far away from, a space of publicness or being out literally outside or available to the public and not behind the walls of an institution or a commercial gallery uh, or in most cases just locked in storage somewhere. Right. Um, so, so I think that um, what I come back to um, uh, is um, I think one of the ideological underpinnings of of 
of liberalism and um, and, and 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 liberal white supremacy, which is the I, the um, the ultimate goal being a, um, a a unity between um, intention and effect, and a sort of purity scale by which. Um, uh, that the best works are the works that um, that that seamlessly integrate their their design and their motivation and um, and and their history. Um, so that it's so that it's like here's a thing that is you know that is here's a here's an intention that is so well designed that it cannot be polluted by its by its context or whatever. And, and I, I think of that as actually um, a, um, a, 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 a kind of fool's errand because it does all these things where it encourages us to A, imagine that everything has to be embodied in a single work. Um, and so when we're talking about someone like Mark Bradford, who I don't know or Julie, you know, that 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 the idea is we talk about this work, but we then don't talk about anything else that they might be doing in their lives. Right. Um, and it's like we don't talk about like I have no idea how he runs his studio. Like I have no idea like what the people who work for him and with him get paid. I don't know if it's a good gig. Like maybe it is. Like maybe those things are actually um, ultimately more important than um, than ha than than where this thing ends up in in a storeroom or not. Because we're placing the value on um, like quality of life within a community. Well, or on a notion that the artist somehow summons this this like mystical intention and imbues it into an object, and then that is a that 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 activity is untouched by reality or or politics. Right. Yeah. But I, I I mean I guess what I'm saying is that like like that would be the that would be the the assumption that it would be an underlying myth, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and I guess like the truth as I see it, or, and you can tell me if I'm getting this wrong, that you're trying to express is that like the, like um, ultimately like what is, um, you know, if we go back to that question of like, what do people need? Well, they need a good quality of life, right? So if the question is like, how does art contribute to that? We have to look at the bigger picture. So part of that is what happens inside the studio? How do people, um, you know, run their businesses? And actually, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about Mark Bradford's practice, but I do know that Julie Maratu is actually known for being tremendously generous. Yeah, you know, in relation to the mural, uh, it was like a $5 million commission and 4 million of that was spent on paying assistance uh, in the production of the work. It's mm -hmm. not like, you know, she was making a huge amount of money off of that. Uh, 
but you know, in the art world, artist assistants, I mean, there is very little transparency around any of that. And obviously that connects to the way in which um, activists uh, have been able to get any leverage with museums is to make transparent the salary yes. structures, make yeah. transparent all of these things that are sort of disconnected, shut behind the scenes, that are a function of governance that really people aren't supposed to be engaged with, right. which does dovetail with this notion that, you know, for Trump, victory means people being disengaged from politics, except his chosen base, you know, um, right. he wants them to engage, certainly, but no one else. Well, I mean, we talk about him releasing his tax returns all the time, like, you know, <laughs> you know how about how many artists do that? Um, uh, <laughs> you know, there is, there's a, um, there, I mean, this is the thing that I'm sort of that I, that I'm sort of um, getting to, right? Which is that um, the present moment seems to be a time where people are being called to account in, you know, the publishing industry, in you know, in stand-up comedy, and um, in um, you know, in, uh, in media, in news media, in, uh, you know, um, uh, weirdly enough in game development, you know, <laughs> um, and in the comics industry, like these are all like, like you, you're complimentary about my presence on Twitter. Like basically I'm, I follow like, <laughs> you know, games, Twitter and comics, Twitter and, and like sort of various fandoms and things like that. And, and the art world a little bit, but it's, you know, that's the thing. Everywhere I look, I'm seeing, I'm seeing women and I'm seeing people of color, like talking about harassment in these fields. And, you know, I would, I wish that more of that was talked about in the art world because it, at the level of like arts production, um, everybody adopts a kind of weirdly waspy attitude of like, it's really not good to talk about money. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there was maybe, I don't know if it was a year ago at this point, but uh, there was a, a salary or just a, even an income spreadsheet that went around for artists. Mm -hmm. And the week that I was sent it, was also the week that I realized that I was going to be stuck with a fourteen thousand, no, fifteen thousand dollar tax bill for twenty eighteen, mm -hmm. and realizing that I had not made any money for that year. In fact, I was fifteen thousand dollars in debt. Um, I was so just in hurt that like I couldn't bring myself to fill out or contribute to that spreadsheet, which would mm -hmm. have remained anonymous anyway to a degree because there is still that. Um, even within that idea of doing that, people weren't going to put their names on it. Mm -hmm. you know? And so far with any of the kind of union discussions around that, it is this balance of like, well, how much information can we make share with ourselves, like the community of artists or artists working within a gallery mm -hmm. or a particular field and how much is made public and how much is not, you know? Um, but such a sensitive area that it very much, um, uh, yeah, an area of we, we don't really want to get into it for a whole lot of reasons, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and that's what I would class as friction. Mm -hmm. 
And so any function of the art world that that is about obscuring or 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 making us sensitive about those things is eliminating friction. Mm. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing that I think we have to really think about ultimately. Yeah, and when you were describing um works and the way they function, um I was thinking about, you know, Dred Scott's um, Slave Rebellion reenactment, where that was, a, you know, a piece done a few years ago that I think mm -hmm. embodied... I think it was done I just mean, last year. Like it yeah. was 2019 yeah, in January or December. As a very different kind of public monument, you know, uh, a temporal performance-based piece, you know, it had a, a sort of definite lifespan. Um, I think that was an amazing piece, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it it just functioned so far away from the kind of market systems that maybe define success and get tied up with vast sums of money mm -hmm. um, and that sort of more brittle system. And I mean, just as, as a piece, I, I feel like it hasn't been discussed <laughs> nearly enough uh, in the current moment, you know. I mean, I think I think that's true only to an extent. I mean, the, to my mind, the fact that that piece got made is like at all is just a tribute to Dred Scott and his um, you know work and persistence. Because you know he talked to me about having had approached Creative Time about it, and they ultimately turned him down because they felt that he was not enough of a market-friendly artist for them to do, be able to do fundraising. So the whole thing was like scrapped together with, but it was scrapped together by people who like, I think just really believed in the project and felt like this had, they had mm -hmm. to find a way to make it happen. And that's part of what like was so exciting to see that work and why it was partially that context made it so, powerful because mm -hmm. like it's like it's in so many like so many other artists that piece just like would not exist you know and he he really made that thing happen mm -hmm. and it wasn't just him it was yeah. a whole it, it, host of people that made that happen which i think is also like part of you know um where we were talking about like the idea of art being this like one thing that comes out of one person versus you know actually it serves a community and comes out of the community and that work really seems to represent that set of ideas right so or, or i just wanted to, i mean i think it, it goes to a question that i think nayland you know you and i can talk to specifically is like what is the role of the individual artist and how does it feel to kind of be producing work out of a studio potentially for museums versus this idea of the you know publics and people out in the streets you know creating things and tearing mm -hmm. things down and dread's piece sits somewhere right in the middle of that right like orchestrated and brought to life by one singular artist, but involving people from around the country who traveled there. And it sort of sits in that space. Um, but it's, you know, Dreads is an art piece, you know, sort of clearly delineated within um, how we think about performance or, or public art or socially engaged work versus 
you know, ad hoc communities of people coming together and just sort of making something that we all are confronted with and have to kind of debate and discuss. But, you know, I think it sits somewhere in that, that space. And it's all, I guess it's also just a question around, you know, the role of the individual artist. Um, I, I mean, you know, William, you've heard me talk before. I don't, I, to me, there's what I do in the studio. There's what I do in the classroom. There's what I do as a writer. There's what I do as a curator. All of those things are the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. They're, they are just different mediums. And, and if I had to sum up what I'm trying to do um, in all of those things is I'm trying to provide opportunities for people to realize their own creative power. And I believe that I can do that in the studio by like fully experiencing my own. Um, I believe that I can do that in the classroom by like, you know, putting them in dialogue with each other and helping them to be um, strong readers and, and commenters on each other's work. And I believe I can do that as a curator by like bringing together other examples of that, that other people have made and trying to create, um, you know, excitement and, and engagement around the things that I love. Um, and so to me, I, it, it's, um, I guess I've always seen myself as having a lot of roles and, and that's because n no one of them feels sufficient to me. Mm -hmm. um, yes. They, they are all are part of the same work. So, um, so, and, and so, so that's the thing, what, Patty, when you were saying like something that comes out of a community, it's like, well, maybe it doesn't come out, actually. If we're really actually going to talk about regionalism, like there's, a, there's, there's the enormous value of things that happen for a small group of people, and that's that, you know, and, and, do, and they do not get translated into some uh, some larger consumed experience um, for for some group of people who you know are only getting a fragment of the work because they were not doing the work of helping to make that thing happen right, right. it's like it's why should all these people eat if they didn't bring any food you know so that's a that's a thing that that um, I think we can start to ask about um, about works of art that are where it's not tied to this narrative of like here's a person in the studio and how are they going to like transmit something through all of the filters that this that you know that a certain market has set up in order to somehow reach a group of people who are uh, you know in the terms that we've set up outside of the studio and alien to the person who's inside of it. It's like, well, with all of those preconditions, like, of course you get the results that you do. But, but what happens when we look at all of the other stuff that we do during the day? I feel like I'm finally, like, we had a conversation uh, I, many years ago, but you, I, I remember that conversation because uh, one of the things you'd said was that 
for you, everything ties back to art. And we could talk about, you know, uh, any number of things, but they, it, it all sort of ended up in that sphere. And I feel like after this conversation, many years later, I'm finally starting to have an idea, like a better idea of what that actually means. Um, because it's a, a, because everything, it seems like what you're saying is that everything that you do has a relationship to everything else. And it's not, um, and that, um, and that there's value in that. And that, um, um, once you start assigning value in that way, you can start to question other types of values that maybe you hadn't before. Like, I think I maybe hadn't um, thought in the same way that, hey, maybe it's okay that this thing that was just a regional thing is a regional thing. And that's just, that's what it was meant for. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, just to, you know, leap in on that, look at the history of art making in the world, right? Yeah. For as long as people have been making things, it is only an infinitesimal fragment of that time that we've been able to conceive of art as not being regional. Like, it was always, it was always right. tied to a specific um, time, to a specific time of the year, to a specific day of the week, to a specific location. Like it was profoundly regional. And it's yeah. one of the reasons why it functioned in such a, in such a deep way. But it why? is, and so when I say that this sort of transnational, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is colonialism under another name, yes, colonialism and it and and capitalism allowed us the to have the mistaken notion that the best works of art are somehow trans, transcendent and can go everywhere and of course yep. it told us that because those were the works of art that it was most interested in making money off of god i know and it's it's all you know to some degree built on this kantian notion that if if i can have this aesthetic experience and it's possible that you could too, because we have this faculty, and that just tries to make universal this aesthetic judgment, you know, through this one faculty. Um, it is sort of infinitely frustrating because I, you know, hear everything that you're saying and um, all of these kind of systems of value are, are, are built on this kind of recent development. I guess what I you know, still think of is modernism to a large degree, where it was sort of like, here is the system that can go anywhere. And you know, when you're just even using the word functional, that art would have a function in the particular culture and society that produced that, that form, everything about what we do is so defunctionalized, you know, away from, from specific people or needs or goals. Um, you know, to even raise those things, um, you know, can get people upset about how they even think about what, what art is or what it should do or could do. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe that's why I'm so, so interested and fascinated by like the, the transparency spreadsheets as being a kind of art that I would like to see more in the world, you know? Yeah. 
You know, I, I just wanted to add like one little bit about the transparency uh, spreadsheets because I think they're sort of an interesting phenomenon that I have gone through like a couple of sort of phases with where I felt like um, for for a while I had started to feel like some of these spreadsheets were like duplicating efforts. So you'd see them in multiple different places and they were people doing the same thing and like wouldn't it be nice to have like more kind of coordination? Um, but like, I think the thing that's interesting to me, at least for the, um, some of the spreadsheets, William, that you've showed me, it's like how much, like how detailed they are, like how um, specific they are and how it, I feel like um, they've certainly gone beyond like, you know, lists of like, black people in the arts or something like that, right? Like it's, it's, it's a lot more specific and like um, in some ways designed to be more actionable, um, which I think is kind of really exciting to see. Yeah, there, they seem to be an exciting development that parallel the more familiar letter writing campaigns, whether it was say the, the Verso letter around the candor situation at the Whitney where you have you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people in the art world sort of sign on to maybe some specific demands. But now we're getting data and information to kind of support um, demands that letter writing campaigns can have. So, I mean, the um, Artworks for Black Lives uh, letter that went out is moving beyond just a sign and forget to they're organizing a general assembly and they have over 200 people signed up for working groups to sort of move forward with that work. And the Black Artists for Freedom uh, sort of manifesto that came out um, has just a bulleted list of things that could be acted upon. And so I think, you know, we're, we're seeing it move past, you know, maybe just sort of letter writing campaigns that I think we, I equate with like the petition thing, you know, where there's constantly petitions that people sign, but they don't kind of come back to how do we move forward on these yes. things. And we're definitely in that moment where there's so much organizing that, I mean, I... So it, it, here's, I mean, to maybe just circle back to an earlier question, which was your sort of question about the, about um, the AIDS era. Yes. And, um, and I, um, the thing that I remember about that on the West Coast was, the moment at which people were willing to say a multiplicity of actions is okay. Like that, like that at a certain point, people were so frustrated that it was like, we can't wait for the official version of what this protest is going to be. So maybe there will be 20 protests with 15 people at each protest or maybe there will be all of these different efforts. But instead of waiting around for the people who were sort of the professional organizers at the time to do that, like the fact that so many people were just going ahead and doing it and act and taking that action was what actually pushed that change forward. And the fact that they to know. And the fact that people knew that it was like, maybe you couldn't make it to a march, but maybe you could like bring a plate of food to somebody who you knew was housebound, right? That, that, that there was not a kind of moral judgment about 
how people could contribute and there were multiple points of entry and it's like you could sew a panel for the quilt you know you could you know you could contribute to a food bank you could do, you know all of these different things um that's the thing that makes me hopeful about this movement that about this this particular moment that we're in um is that there are multiple points of entrance and so what that says is um you know to artists like stop waiting around for the for the perfect thing to put your imprimatur on like do something get up do something else like it does not matter if they are small efforts like keep it moving it's it was really interesting to me to see when people were like online contributing to bail funds and then very quickly like the second you know the second day that i saw people like listing these donations like seeing notices like the bail funds have enough money like here's where you should be sending your money yeah. you know <laughs> yeah that that it's like that that that's a powerful thing because it's not based in ideological purity it's about like this is where the need is now here's what you can do to meet it right it's so interesting because in all of the union organizing calls i've been talking about trying to meet unmet needs of the different representatives on the call it's not just an artist union there's art handlers there's freelance writers there's curators and starting that from a position of what are people's needs that should guide the work um you know there's there's even pushback against that language because mm -hmm. it sort of it has to be asking, well, whose needs are we talking about and how are those needs different? And are they unequally met, you know? And what could a union do to maybe um, progressively support people's needs? Mm -hmm. But using that as a basis seems to just be uh, how the work should proceed, you know, out of need, not just concerns, but yeah. literally what are the unmet needs. Yeah. And, I'm so optimistic just about the, the, the dialogue happening across different movements that might have different concerns, but really trying to find areas of overlap and where we can support each other and that it's all kinds of work. Mm -hmm. you know? it, and, and that I think is the most interesting thing yeah. to see and know that the technology can be used in that way, as opposed to, organizing gamer gates, you know, and trolling communities. Right. You know? And and that's where people can realize their own power in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. I'm I, I I'm embarrassed to say this, but I have uh, another meeting that I'm hosting that starts in a minute. This is like <laughs> this is so much fun. And I love, love, love talking to you guys. Um, and 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 I really want to do more um <laughs> this was amazing it was really fun for us too um i want to thank you so much neilan for uh coming on the show um and uh i we will definitely do it again cool yes
Thank you so Thanks. much. Thanks. Yeah, and um, follow me on Twitter, and you can see all of my weird Animal Crossing posts, which is the other thing that I that I <laughs> use that platform for <laughs> to talk about video games, to talk about a non-combative video game. Anyway, <laughs> so you're you're just nail like at Nail and Blake, right? At Nail and Blake, all one word. Um, and uh, and my website, which is rarely updated, is. Uh, uh, nailandblake.net. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Nealon. Thank you. I I I love both of you guys. And let's do this again soon. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Bye.